Hello, and welcome to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Blue whales, the biggest of the gentle giants and the most elusive. During the whaling era, blue whales were hunted to the brink of extinction. And while they are slowly but surely making a comeback, there's still so much to uncover about their lives. So, what do we know about the world's largest animal? What are the current issues they are facing? And, most importantly, how do we keep blue whales around for millennia to come? In today's episode, we're sitting down with Daniela Arocon, marine biologist and whale expert in the Galapagos Islands. Daniela grew up in the Ecuadorian highlands and spent her childhood camping and exploring her wild home. The first time she went to the sea and started to learn about cetaceans, she knew that she wanted to become a marine biologist and study this incredible group of animals. Daniela's years of hard work and dedication paid off as she was part of the first group of researchers to tag a blue whale in the Galapagos Islands. I knew so little about blue whales before sitting down with Daniela, and she taught me so much, which you will hear soon. Danny gives the Blue Whales 101 how she and her team tagged the first blue whales in the Galapagos, the most significant conservation issues the whales are battling, and what we all can do to help this magnificent species. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe wherever you're listening to be alerted when the next episode drops. Also, if you'd like to stay up to date on everything that's happening with the podcast, head on over to the newly redesigned website and sign up for the Rewildology newsletter at Rewildology.com. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Daniela. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for coming on today. Rewildology podcast and talking about a really fun topic. I'm so excited to get into your expertise here. But before we get to all of that, let's paint a picture of who you are and your whole story. So where did you grow up? What was young Danny like? <laughs> so hello, I'm Daniela and I was uh, born in Quito. That's the capital city of Ecuador. That is high in the mountains, so it's a very nice place. It's one of the highest city in the cities in the world. So it's a very nice city, not very big. And I was like just growing up there with my family. We always go to the mountains. We always visit like places nearby. And yeah, we travel many times like around Ecuador. So it was very nice. Awesome. So it sounded like your love of nature and wildlife started really young did you spend did you like have like a lot of family vacations or or where did that all start yes yeah with my family we always went to the nature mainly because yeah my parents always like to go to the forest and to the mountains mainly for fishing or camping then we all start like biking so they were like, we were like going all around like mountain uh, bike trails and knowing new places and then always like interacting with, with nature. And then when I was like very young, uh, my parents were living in uh, the Amazon part of Ecuador. So the, that was like the very beginning. I, when I was like two years old, I was like already like living like next to a river with lots of animals. 
Nice. So is that where your love of aquatic species and stuff <laughs> began? Was it that? Because Quito is not anywhere close to the ocean. Uh, no, Quito is uh, actually in the mountains. And it's like uh, five hours from the coast. So, yeah, I think like mostly my love to animals started like growing next to the river or like visiting the coast. But like what really caught my attention was when we went on a vacation to the Galapagos. So since I was little, I started to get to know more, a little bit of more about like the coast and get more involved and really like it to be like <laughs> close to the so then how did you get into marine biology? You are an incredible scientist. So what is your journey to that that led you to becoming like a full-blown amazing researcher in the Galapagos? Uh, yeah, so then I started to be more interested in the Galapagos since the first time I visited. And then when I finished high school with my cousin, we were like, okay, we need to travel, we need to go somewhere. And then we decided to go to the Galapagos to visit and to know uh, some uh, more about the town itself. And then we visited. we planned to stay a couple of days, but we ended up like staying a couple of months. And then <laughs> we were like volunteering and working in, in exchange of diving courses. Oh. So yeah, learning how to do snorkel and learning how to dive in the Galapagos was like a life-changing experience for me because like starting to see all the magic that was like underwater was like key and was like completely what it, it really had my attention for what it, it's like on the ocean. It was not like when I was like very literal because I was far from the ocean, I think. So I was more interested like in other type of nature in the mountains, but in the moment that I was like learning and discovering about this underwater world, I was like, okay, no way. This is something that I really want to do. <laughs> because yeah, it was like amazing. And actually Galapagos is so amazing that for me, just like doing the first dive or just snorkeling in town was like, okay, this is something so different that I have never have the really chance to see it like very closely so I was like no then before and during high school both of my parents are doctors so I always was like okay I'm going to be a doctor and since I was like very young I was like helping my dad going like to surgeries with him uh helping him a lot but then I discovered like underwater world and I was like no no way <laughs> I don't want to be a doctor <laughs> then I changed and I started because we spent like this a couple of months in the Galapagos and then my parents were like okay then you have to come back and then you have to start like st studying or go to the university or do something else and, and then I decided like okay if I'm going to study something now I want to be like a biologist and be more like uh, with more knowledge about what's like this new world and things that I was not like aware before <laughs> but yeah that's how like I really decided to go to, into the biology and marine ecology field. And then I never regret about it. Like since I started, every time was like more interesting. And since now it's like 15 years later, I think <laughs> more maybe <laughs> 18 years later, I'm still like the same, no? Very amazed and like 
very keen to discover and to see what is this underwater world. Wow, that is beautiful. Like when it's just I just love meeting people that have like truly found their calling and just hearing the passion come out of you recalling when you discover that first dive trip to the Galapagos and just what that meant for you. Oh, God, clearly was a major focal point in your life that launched you off into like the, the rest of your life, essentially. So then, okay, so I'm assuming then you went to university for marine biology. And is this when your discovery or love of whales started? Or what, what was that journey? Did that start in college? Or did it start when you got your first job in the Galapagos? Or, or what was that transition? How did you get into this? Oh, yes. So uh, during my full career, I started with biology, then I changed to marine ecology. But then the good thing about the university, Universidad San Francisco de Quito, that's the university that I was studying, they had a campus in Galapagos, so it was like, this is perfect and I can be there. But also Ecuador is one very key countries for the migration and reproduction for, of humpback whales. So I had a class, of marine mammals class, and I was like, yeah, oh, this is so awesome. And then my professor, she has a project with humpbacks in the coast. And I was like, yeah, totally going to help her. I have seen whales before because yeah, it's very common to have these whale watching trips in Ecuador during the uh, humpback season. But that was it, like humpbacks and maybe dolphins in the in Ecuador. So after I took this class and after I went to the university, I was going learning more about like, oh, there were like more species of cetaceans in Ecuador and not just like humpbacks. And then I was like, oh, so this is great. Maybe I need to start looking for more information. So then when I had the chance to visit Galapagos again with my university, I decided that I want to do something else because there was like just a very few information of what was happening with cetaceans in the Galapagos or in general in Ecuador. So I get more interested. And I then, when I was finishing my college, I decided to did my undergrad bachelor thesis in a very remote place in the Galapagos. So uh, it's like you have four islands that are inhabited in the Galapagos that have population on them. And the rest of the area is a national park. So 3% of the Galapagos is for the population. And then 97% of the Galapagos is a national park area plus the marine reserve that now just expanded a lot. So it's a big area. And then it's also divided in different regions. So one region is in the west part of the Galapagos that it's a very, very productive area. And it, where, it is where most of the sightings of cetaceans were done. So my idea for my thesis was to understand the distribution and the seasonality and what species of cetaceans were found in the Galapagos in that region in specific. And then in that specific place, it's like at least 10 hours in a big boat and six hours from the town in a speedboat. And then it's just like a small station. So I went there and I spent seven months going and coming back, but like in a very remote place, just living with a park ranger and, a, and another two guys from the Navy and from the National Park. 
studying citation. So that was like also life changing. I was like, oh, this is great. And then also I started to work as a volunteer with the national park to be more involved in the project and also to create a program that start collecting data for the national park in terms of like citizen science for citations because there were a lot of sightings and in Galapagos, you have a lot of cruises, boat cruises going around where you have training naturalistic guides with the tourists. So the idea was to increase more of the citizen science and to get more of these sightings that people were having. So then, yeah, I spent seven months there with no one else. Everyone was like saying that I was kind of like crazy to be there <laughs> because yeah, there was nothing. And then it was like boats going around, but then they changed the person in the station every 20 days so it was like at the beginning I was like 20 days in and going back and then going back again 20 days but then at the end I was like okay no I'm staying here in a row so I was like <laughs> going less and less to the town but yeah so those seven months and then I spent another year working with the Galapagos National Park and that was amazing because I worked with Eduardo Espinosa. He was in charge of the marine department or marine research department in the Galapagos National Park. And then they work very close with other researchers that are doing research in the Galapagos. So I was very, very lucky to be able to work with them and to be involved in other projects. So I had the chance to visit the northern islands of the Galapagos, that is Darwin and Wolf, and are one of the best places for diving in the world so they were like doing whale shark program and a census of sharks so I was like just going there and I was like a very young student so for me it was like one of the best experiences of my life as well to see there and to be diving with like hundreds and hundreds of sharks and seeing these like big whale sharks swimming around so yeah that was like just crazy but yeah, so that caught my attention and I was like, yes, this is like the best thing that I can do for like studying and for like actually what was going to be my work. So yeah, then I was like very happy. But then after that, those two years, I was like, okay, what else? What else I can do? So I applied for a master's program in Australia. So then I traveled to Australia for two years to study a master in science that was in protected area management because I was more interested and I was like getting more information about like all the threats for these migratory animals, what issues the marine reserve was having. So all these ideas of the threats that were like affecting the Galapagos were also part of this discovery of this new underwater life. So it was like amazing. It was so abundant, so many different animals and so many amazing animals and unique animals in the same place. But at the same time, on the other side, it was like, okay, but not everywhere is like this. Seeing what was happening in the coast that was not protected and also like seeing all these threats that the animals and the Galapagos were facing. Okay, so I was like, yeah, we need to do something else. And then the idea of like this management of protected areas came from. So then I was like, okay, then I really wanted to keep working with whales 
but working with whales is it needs a lot of patience and also it's very expensive so i was like okay no i want to try something else first to get more experience and learn more about like science in general so then i started to work with sea turtles uh, i started to work with sea turtles actually before also when i was like studying at the university and i was like doing some pro volunteer programs in the coast where we were discovering uh, these nesting places in some in some areas and also trying to protect these places and working a little bit with sea turtles in the Galapagos. So then I decided to start working with sea turtles for my master program. And what I did, it was one of the issues for the Galapagos sea turtles. We have two main species in the Galapagos that are the green sea turtles and the houseville sea turtles. Mm. And houseville sea turtles are a critically endangered species. So at the beginning, it was thought that they were just passing or a migratory species in the Galapagos. But then we started to see more and more of these individuals. So we were like, OK, maybe they are not just passing by, but maybe we have some populations that are staying on the islands. But also we were seeing that green sea turtles were very affected by boat strikes oh. in the populated areas. So I was like, okay, what we can do for this? So I, for my master thesis, what I, I was working in seeing how the sea turtles move in a very fine scale using acoustic tags and following the animals. And then overlapping that with the boat tracks that we were having for from tourist boats and local boats, fishermen boats in the Galapagos. So I give them a GPS and also track how they were moving. And then when we overlap the home ranges of the sea turtles and the boat tracks, it was like just in the same places. So with that, I managed to create a map of a high risk for sea turtles. And the idea is like, to give that information and to work in conjunction with the national park to create new regulation and to have information to help them to make informed decisions on what they could do for like protecting the animals in terms of like making the boats to reduce the speed and having some areas that can be closed in terms of like high densities for sea turtles. No? So then I got back from my master's back to Galapagos and I was lucky to start working back with the sea turtles and I started to work in a research center that is located in the Galapagos. They were just starting when I come back. So they have like a few projects and I managed to get in and to start working there as a researcher, but also I was working as a lab manager, marine lab manager in this center. So then, yeah, I was like able to work with other researchers, other projects, and to keep doing research in the Galapagos. And then slowly going back to what I really like, that is like cetaceans. But in the meantime, I also was working with other big projects that it was like trying to understand how the plastic pollution is affecting the Galapagos. So I started to work in that project in 2014. And uh, ideally the, the plan with this project project like it's a big program that I'm like just a part of that project and they were seeing that plastic was affecting a lot of places in the Galapagos and some exposed sites are just being like covered with plastic arriving with the marine currents and 
Then we started to work with the community and create regulations with uh, full commissions with many institutions, but we managed to ban plastic bags and to ban like these stereofoam containers from the islands. And that was in 2016, 2017. So then they want to keep like these regulations and like keep the reinforcement of people like doing this thing that we were like having. But then at the same time, I was like, okay, let's go back to the whales. <laughs> but yeah, since 2016, but then two big things happened in this, in this year because then one of the big things, uh, it was that I started working with a collaborator, Hector Guzman. He's from the Smithsonian Research Institute in Panama. So he was uh, interested in coming to the Galapagos and we started working together with the idea, with the main idea of reactivating this patient program that was Pacific collecting information or passive collecting information in the Galapagos with the naturalistic guide sending us the sightings that they have, what species they were seeing, what praise some of the dolphins were like having in the islands. So we had a lot of information. We got pictures from individuals for the photo ID catalogs, but then, yeah, we wanted to go further to start like actually actively searching the animals and actively doing more research. So then we start to look for the animals, for cetaceans around the Galapagos 2016. Then 2017 was a year that I got pregnant and I have my little kid. So it was like a more like take it easy. And then we also have some of field trips, but I was not very involved because yeah, I was uh, more with the maternity. So, but that is like another history, very nice. And I love to have my little daughter but yeah so then when we started to go out it was like we started to find not a lot but uh, different species of cetaceans and we were interested mostly in killer whales and blue whales that mm. are the most iconic animals i think blue whales are like the biggest animal in the world so it's very very iconic and they are in danger as well so we were like okay let's see what we can do with the blue whales and then killer whales also because we have uh, different like sightings we have information of like naturalistic guys so we were like searching for them but then yeah we were like prepared so the first year we went out to search for the killer whales and then we just like find other big whales species like blue whales or humpbacks or bright whales. So it was like kind of frustrating because yeah, we were like, okay, next year. So next year we were like prepared for the big whales, and the blue whales and everything. But then the killer whales were around and we were just having like killer whale sightings and the blue whales. And all the big whales were not there. So it was like, okay, no, my God. And then, yeah, the next year we were like, yeah, this is the year. So we went prepared, <laughs> but it was like 2019. And we found the blue whales. We managed to take samples. We couldn't place any tag in that year. But yeah, we got a lot of information in terms of like pictures, sampling, and a little bit of behavior data. So that was like perfect. We were like super excited. Then we managed also to get some information and some samplings of bottlenose dolphins that are actually a resident group around in the island. And then 
next year we were prepared and then the pandemic arrived so it was like okay now we have just two years of like just waiting and we managed to get and um, collect some information because we keep having the sightings mm, and then yeah uh, last year we were like okay this is the year so <laughs> it's not ending there so wait <laughs> but yeah uh, so we were like, yeah, then let's go. So we planned everything to have a trip in August. And we went out to search for the whales in August. And we were like super prepared. We have everything. We have like a guy that was just in charge of like filming and taking pictures and everything. And then we started the trip and then the wind was so bad that we just couldn't like not even like go out on the ball because we were like seasick and we cannot see like because it was too much wind. So we were okay then let's wait so we spent like 10 days going around the galapagos with bad weather and then we just found like one blue whale and a couple of bright whales around but yeah we were more interested in the blue whales but it was just one in 10 days and we couldn't like not even like get very close because the wind was very bad and the weather was not very nice so i was i'm not and then i i also like forget to mention that during the pandemic i was like okay, maybe my job is not going to be secure anymore because then I might change my job to a emblematic project coordinator at the Galapagos Science Center. And my job was based on working with the students that wanted to come to research in the Galapagos and to have the experience of doing research in the Galapagos. So we have this program now that promote students to come to the Galapagos and to have this program where they actively participate in research projects to learn how research is done in the Galapagos. So yeah, that was like one year and then the pandemic. So I was like, okay, with no students, what else I can do? So then, yeah, I applied for a PhD program also with an Australian university. And then I got accepted. So that was like perfect. And that was like super nice for me. So then, yeah, I was like, okay, I wanted to use the data that I already have from the blue whales to start my PhD. And I, during the pandemic, what I was doing is just analyzing data and start with this as soon as possible. So I started last July with my PhD. And then in August, we have the first trip. And this first trip was no whales at all and bad weather. So I was like, oh, perfect. The first trip of my PhD is no whales. <laughs> Then it was like, okay, what else? Because like the logistics and the, it's very expensive. So yeah, having a 10 day trip with a football just like for searching whales was like a lot and then nothing. So I was like, oh, oh my. But then luckily Hector, he, uh, with the Smithsonian, they found another trip in September and it was totally, totally different. So we have better conditions, still a little bit of wind, but it, wind but it was much better and then we managed to go to the place where we start like finding blue whales everywhere so actually every time that we go out the most fishing species in terms of like big uh, whales in the Galapagos are bright whales but during that trip it was like bright whale no 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 that's a blue whale and then <gasps> the next <laughs> the next spot it was like oh my god blue whales again so we were finding just blue whales and then we managed to get like everything like pictures samples and then we managed to lay satellite tags on the individuals to see how they move 
Uh, so yeah, that was like a success because yeah, we managed to tag 10 individuals, but then I managed to photo identify 35 individuals. And that was a lot. And that is a lot because usually what you have is that blue whales, they do not travel in groups. So when you find one is like one individual or maybe two individuals, but this was like blue whales everywhere. So I was like, okay, <laughs> taking pictures and maybe I was like, yeah, maybe they are the same individuals, but then like classifying and seeing the animals, they were like all different all the day. So I, I was like, okay, that was like mind blowing to see how many individuals I was finding. We were like founding and then I managed to take more samples. So now I'm like in the process of doing the genetics of all the samples. The main idea is to see where these populations are coming from. Because in the past, blue whales, titans were very scared and they were just in certain seasons of the year, just in this uh, time, July up to November. And there were just 10, individual sample in the history of the Galapagos. So there were not too many individuals that were around because mainly because I think in the past, blue whales populations were very, very low. So it was very hard, but now it seems like they are recovery because of all the effort that we have done in terms of like banning the whaling and all the effort in terms of protecting these animals. So whales are the perfect example in terms of like conservation and all the amazing work that people can do when they realize that we need to do something for an animal. So I really like to work with them because yeah, it's like a perfect example of like how to protect and how to bring a species back. And now we have more sightings and we are reporting now blue whale sightings all year round. But wow. we still don't know, yeah, we still don't know where they are coming from. So maybe we think they are from the south, from the populations in Chile, because yeah, we have different populations. We have the populations from the north and then from the south, and the, then also we have the populations from Antarctica. So we were not, we were not sure where these individuals are coming from. Now we are still don't knowing because the genetics are showing a very high diversity of on these animals. And then we are also studying the sex radios of these individuals for the genetics and to understand more about this population structure. Uh, so it's very, very interesting to start like digging more and searching more about these animals. Ideally, we want to get these results done and also compare that with the diet of these species because usually, they have very marked areas where they feed and what it happens with other cetaceans or what they used to think that it happens is like they feed in these areas where food is very abundant, for example, in Chile or in the Antarctic or in the North as well, for example, California, the California current, for example. But then in these tropical areas where they come to breed, they don't feed too much. And for example, they, they think the same about like humpback whales. They just stop feeding and travel to these tropical areas just to reproduction and to uh, give birth to the calves. But in the Galapagos, we are seeing that blue whales are feeding most of the time that we are finding them. So these animals are so big that they cannot like stop eating. 
And what we want to see is how long they are staying in these areas and how important are the Galapagos for these populations that are staying maybe uh, for the entire year around this area, no? So what it was thought before, it was like, maybe they are migrating every year, going from higher latitudes to lower latitudes. But now maybe we are seeing the plasticity that they have in terms of like, staying in an area or relying on the resources that those area has in terms of like uh, feeding resources and that thing, no? So that's what we wanna understand more. We don't know yet for sure if that is like what is happening, but yeah, with all these pieces that we are co collecting, we want to start like getting the puzzle more like in detail now to see what is like actually happened because yeah, it's very, very good news that these populations are like recovering, but now they're facing other threats like boat strikes or plastic entanglement, noise pollution, climate change. So it's still no. So now they are like relieving of some of the pressure that they have, but in other sites they're like, okay, no, getting more pressure for like the boats and everything. Wow, that was so much great info. Gosh, that was fantastic. And and you hit so many amazing points. And there's one that I want to go back to that you breezed over that I really want to highlight. And that was the fact that you tagged these whales. And from what I understand, you and your team, you're the first people to ever tag a blue whale in the Galapagos. Am I correct? Oh, yes. So, um, that's our amazing. Team, uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, indeed, that was like so exciting and like take so me nice through that. What us. was that like? How does it work? Like, how do you tag a whale? What is the data specifically that you're collecting? And then take me through that experience where you're like, I just tagged the first blue whale on the Galapagos. Like, that's freaking <laughs> amazing. So, like, teach me all the things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, I was like very, very lucky to start working with Dr. Hector Guzman from the Smithsonian Research Institute. And he is the experienced researcher who was doing all this process. We, it, actually, it's like a full group job, I think, because we need a group of people in terms of like, we we were like in the small zodiac and Hector has been working with cetaceans for many, many years. He has been tagging whales in other places like Antarctica or Panama, Chile, Mexico. So he has a lot of experience. So we were there and I'm still learning the process. I'm learning all these things. So I'm in charge at the moment of taking the pictures. And it's like, as I say, team job. So Hector is in the front with the tags. Then I'm like in his bag, ready for take the pictures or the samples. And the, uh, the captain of the boat is in the back because it's like a three meter zodiac. And then if you get close to a 20 more uh, meters animal, it's like you're a tiny, tiny thing. But yeah, we managed to tag 10 individuals. I'm still learning how to do it because then you need to train a lot. You need to be like a perfect uh, shooter and have be like super accurate to place the tag. Otherwise you can like disturb the animal maybe or place the tag in a 
in a place that it's not going to transmit signal or then just throwing one of the tags and into the ocean and that will be three thousand dollars just <laughs> into the ocean <laughs> yeah it, it happens to us so it is like okay that's the tag and then now it's in the water, <laughs> in the ocean floor so that that was it but yeah so it's like not everyone can do this and like I really want to put this like uh, as a highlight because then, yeah, we have a very trained and a very well-known researcher that is doing this job and the rest we are all learning, but we were there. We were like the first team to tag the blue whales and then now we are like just seeing where these individuals are moving. What it happens usually is like also you don't get the signal from all the tags and then the animal lost the tags very easily so we still have some individuals that are sending signals but yeah we have some individuals that they the tags are lost already so that's how it is then the idea is to keep doing this job and keep learning and yeah to see where they are moving from uh what we want to see it's like if they are going back to the south or they are staying around these areas or they are moving south, maybe going up to Mexico or California. So that will be great to have those results in the future, no? That is absolutely incredible and definitely cannot wait to hear what kind of data you've collected. I mean, can you share a little bit of preliminary data or not? Is it still being analyzed or, or what's going on? Uh, yeah, we are still analyzing the data. We have the results of the genetics. And in terms of like the sex radios, we uh, expected to have, well, but we didn't expect anything. But <laughs> <laughs> I was not going to say we expected to have more females, but that was not true. We were just like, okay, what is happening? But yeah, because I was maybe thinking females because they are coming to give birth or something, but no, no, <laughs> forget about that, yeah. So then uh, in terms of like the sex radio, it's like very even 50-50. So that's uh, wow. good news. We have like, we can say like healthy population. And then in terms of the genetic, also we have a very high genetic diversity. So that's like very good news. And the good news could be that uh, we have this boundary of where populations from the north are mixing with populations from the south and they are like now understanding how these populations are being structured and how they divide so they have a lot of information of what is happening in the north in california mexico and what is happening in the south also in chile and all those populations but it's missing what is happening in these equatorial areas where it can be like a boundary area where populations could mix or where all these mix could happen. Uh, so then ideally what we want to explore and to define more is this structure on the populations and to see if we are having uh, more of the individuals coming from there or it's not that case. And we also have individuals from the north. So we don't know yet what is happening like in reality we are still analyzing data and we still need to collect more data because yeah we have data from one season that will be the cold season now we are having the next trip we have in march so ideally we will have the other season of the year to see if we find more individuals and in this case what we are 
trying to see if the individuals that we maybe are going to find now are the ones from the north, because then if you um, make the, the comparisons of where is winter and where is summer, then now it's winter in the north, so we have <laughs> maybe the individuals from the north in here. So that's the plan to see if there is like any differences. And what we know is that the animals and blue whales are still around. We have like sightings and yeah, this year actually it's rare year because the weather conditions have been different and we have a cold water temperature that was normal, not normal for this season. So we have a La Nina event uh, coming. So La Nina event is the opposite of El Nino event that it's a oceanographic condition affecting all the region. So when you have these La Nina uh, conditions, then you have colder waters than normal. And in then inland will be more drier. But it's good for some individuals, for example, for cetaceans, it's very good because productivity keeps higher with these cold water conditions. But for example, for sea turtles, it's too cold to nest and things like that. But yeah, so this year we are still uh, wanting to wait one more year to keep and then get more results in order to compare. Yeah. So studying these big animals, migratory animals in its uh, few years to see if they're going back or if you have like resites. With the data, the good news is that we have one resite of a blue whale that was in the Galapagos and then uh, was found in the Costa Rican Dome that is where the blue whales from the Northern Hemisphere are going on the summer, on the winter or summer wind, <laughs> however you want to see then that same blue whale was seen again in the Galapagos. So it's a very good connectivity. And uh, what we want to get with this data also is information about these migration routes that these animals have, because it's what we want to protect. The idea is to keep expanding these marine protected areas. And how I mentioned before, the president of Ecuador just expand the Galapagos Marine Reserve and create a new uh, marine reserve that it's also connecting one corridor that connects Galapagos with Cocos Island in Costa Rica. And this corridor was mostly because of a lot of movement of sharks and sea turtles and other migratory species. So then ideally understanding how these bigger animals like cetaceans are moving, we are going to be able in the future to create these routes uh, connecting more countries and not just like one area with another. So then we, were, we are going to see more in detail what are the most specific areas that we need to protect now in order to protect the species as well. And then uh, this is good because then they work as an umbrella species in terms of like protecting a very big area and protecting other species that lives on that place as well. So that's, that's the main goal of everything. <laughs> Oh, that is so incredible. Yes, I just had on a Costa Rican whale specialist on my podcast. So it's like so funny to, to hear both sides, like both sides of that, because you talked about that corridor as well, like from oh, his side. It's just so funny. Yeah, yeah. It's so that's great. Awesome. Because, I mean, there's this really big wildlife corridor movement on land. So to hear now mm -hmm. that that same concept, which is really important, is also starting to happen in water too, which 
sounds like a whole other beast to tackle when you're talking about international waters and getting international governments to come together to protect this area because it's almost feels like a no man's land, but it's not, but it is. And so to hear that this big corridor was successfully built and protected is so exciting, is so, so, so exciting. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to hear more about that. Oh, oh. So let's take it, let's, let's take it back a little bit for those of us that might not be blue whale specialists. Could you maybe give us a little bit more about their natural history, maybe about their actual history from like a conservation standpoint, but yeah, if there's any special facts or any knowledge that you would like to share about these whales and why they're so freaking special and amazing. (laughs) Okay, yeah, no, I have a lot of facts and a lot of information <laughs> of blue whales. But yeah, first of all, they are the biggest animal that ever exists on Earth. And they uh, numbers actually in the past were higher. They mentioned like more than 3,000, uh, 300,000 individuals were uh, recorded or were like estimated in the past. But then the whaling started and it was in the whaling commercial part where the people start to get faster boats and bigger boats and being uh, able to spend more time in the water, in the ocean, where they start to be able to hunt these individuals. And then they were so big and (laughs) they had so much oil that they were going for a lot of not just blue whales. So whaling managed to almost disappear these populations. And then the population that was more in danger was the individuals living in the South, because then worldwide you have five different populations of blue whales that are described. So if you more or less understand how the oceans are, then you have the Pacific Northern population, then you have the population from the South, then you have a population of blue whales in the Indic and around Australia, and then population in Antarctica. So those individuals were very, very highly affected and very endangered. And now they are, since they banned the whaling and they start protecting these habitats, then a lot of countries start to protect and being part of this whaling commission that was created. So they managed to create these whale sanctuaries in the 200 nautical miles that it's what a country owns of their ocean. So then, yeah, then most of the countries that were part of this commission were like protecting whales and uh, that gave us the chance for humpbacks and blue whales and other species also to start recovering. So then, yeah, blue whales are migratory species. They move very, very long distances. So they can travel more than 100 kilometers a day. Um, wow. I don't know in terms of conversion, how much. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. It's far. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's a lot. Like they travel a lot and they communicate by sound. So they have very low frequencies to communicate. So they sound can travel very, very long distances and they can communicate as well for like very far. So um, another very interesting thing about blue whales is because they are migratory and they are so big 
and uh, they cannot stop feeding like other species that are thought that they just stop feeding when they migrate. But yeah, blue whales need to have these highly productive areas where they can feed while they are migrating as well. So that is also why it's like so important to understand more about these places. And then uh, what now, they are like seeing this animal recovery and what now they are people is studying and what they are saying is using blue whales and all these big whales for also mitigating climate change because they are a perfect animal in terms of like mitigating climate change for different reasons mostly because they are so big that they got a lot of carbon and they storage a lot of carbon and when the whales die they just sink to the bottom of the ocean and all this carbon sink with them. So it's uh, estimated that 33 tons of carbon could be storage in one big whale. Wow, uh, that's crazy. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> no, so now they are like saying like, instead of like planting trees, they are like campaigns of like just having more whales and like storaging more and more carbon on the whales or the any big, big animal. So that's one point. But then second is like they move nutrients from the water, not just from the depth to the surface, but also from higher latitude to lower latitudes because they migrate and they move a lot and they move a lot of water. So this movement of water mix and create nutrients and help to ecosystem be more productive. So one thing is like moving nutrients and helping to increase productivity in the ecosystem. And then also what it's mostly valuable, valuable uh, it's like the poo of the whales, that's yeah. like gold. So the poo of the whales is like very, very rich in iron. And that is one of the elements that it's lacking in the oceans in terms of like having more productivity. So yeah, this rich iron pool that whale has is very, very good for productivity in the ocean. So now they are saying a lot in terms of like recovering these numbers of whales will help in terms of like producing more, getting more like productive ecosystem to increase more like other species, for example, fisheries or commercial fishes that we are using, just having the whales going back to normal numbers, no? So that's one of the key things that people is like starting to talk about whales at the moment in terms of like helping or um, to fight climate change. Wow, you just taught me so much. It's incredible. I had not heard that connection with climate change in whales. That is so cool. And it does make so much sense because just like you said, they just sink to the bottom. Whatever is eaten is eaten. And that is then mm-hmm. stored in other living creatures. And then it just goes to the bottom. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. <laughs> so, and and you- then they serve for many other animals. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> just going to say that it's a lot of food for other animals. Exactly. So much food, so much food. And you briefly mentioned on it, but I would like to explore it a little bit further. What would you say is like the biggest conservation issue that they're facing now? Because obviously the biggest one was whaling. That has been banned and their numbers are recovering. 
but they're still not back to their former glory. So, so what's going on with them? What is, what are they still dealing with? Yeah. Now, sadly, they are like facing other threats and it will be mostly boat strikes and plastic pollution because all these nets that are just floating in the ocean, these ghost nets, these plastics, then they got entangled, they eat the plastic and they are dying because they have their stomach full of plastics. But boat strikes, I think it's one of the main threats now because we have a lot of these big cruises or like shipping boats that they are very big, they go very fast and then they are in the same routes that the whales are. And yeah, boat strikes is one of the main threats now for the animals. So it's a lot of work that it's been done in this. For example, with the tagging and seeing how they move and how they migrate to understand the home range that they have, give us an idea and some areas that ships could avoid. And now they are developing a lot of different techniques. For example, they are also seeing this relationship between uh, whales and high productivity. So another thing that they are doing now in the States, for example, is like measuring where these high productivity plumes are and letting know the boats to those areas and to go slower in those areas and then another thing that they are actually doing another idea is to set underwater recorders to record where whales are around because remember that they are always vocalizing they communicate by sound so then ideally when you put these recorders then you get a signal that a whale will be around and then that signal is sent to the boat to be aware but still, it's very, very hard because what you want being a captain of a boat is to go fast, to be in the from one point to another in the less time possible. And then you don't have the whole time to be there observing and just reducing speed because then what they want is just to get to the place. So, yeah, there's still a lot of like more to do, but there are some efforts now in terms of like reducing these boat strikes to whales and to other cetaceans as well. Mm, so you are starting to see some positive movement in that way. Because I'm sure everybody listening, I'm sure you've seen it too, of just that horrific image of a boat coming to port and there's a dead whale on the bow and it's just... Oh, uh, uh, so, yeah. but it does sound like things are going in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully it's, people is like getting aware of this at least. And then, for example, there was a publication last year in Chile where they were modeling how blue whales are moving. And in Chile is a very busy area because then you have all the salmon farms and all the shipping boats in this area. So they were creating these models or how the blue whales are moving and how they are avoiding these boats the whole time so now it's like this conservation issue and that is also what we want to understand more and we want to mention because then the Galapagos is protected it doesn't have like too much boat traffic uh, so in those terms if we think that the populations here are like in a well position in a nice position but then 
the same individuals are going to be just facing the other side of the coin in terms of like having to avoid this trip the whole time, these boats the whole time. Uh, yeah, so then ideally we want to understand if it's like the same population or what is happening to get more effort in terms of like the conservation part. So that's the main thing on everything, not to get this conservation effort more and more in detail for these animals to see what is happening with the populations. Mm, okay, that, that makes total sense. Okay, so we know so much about blue whales. Thank you for teaching us so much about blue whales. And since this species is so big and it feels so hard to help, what would you say for anybody listening, what is something that we could do to help with blue whales and their conservation? Yeah, no, you can do a lot. So mostly you can help in terms of like reducing just one plastic item. So helping the ocean to be with less plastic and to be less polluted, that will that will be like a huge help for the all the cetaceans because that was one of the main threats as well. But actually also like getting pressure on the government on these corridors to get protected informing on what type of products you consume from the ocean that's another very good thing that you can do for the for all these animals because then fishing techniques fishing gear all these if it's not in a well managed uh, way and it's in a in not from a liable resource what you are getting could be like this type of seafood that you are getting, it's affecting blue whales or it's affecting other cetaceans. So it goes all together in terms of like making pressure to protect more areas uh, or helping campaigns that are uh, doing something against boat strikes in terms of like getting these corridors or reducing the speed for the boats, but just every day reducing any type of plastics or just be aware of what you buy from the ocean. It's very key in terms of like protecting blue whales or other species. Mm. Those are so good. I'm going to make sure I write all those tips down and I will share with everybody. Be like, this is how you protect whales. According to Daniela, these are the tips. (laughs) Yeah, you never know. Sometimes you just go and buy anything and then, yeah, like food products are like sold everywhere. And then you are not like totally aware where it's coming from, how they have caught these animals. And it cannot be blue whales, but can be like tuna and dolphins, for example. And can be like that these big fleets are like fishing in a blue whale area. So they are also polluting this environment with sound pollution, with chemicals, with ghost nets that are just going to be floating around. So yeah, make very good decisions when you're like buying seafood and what products you are using as well. So Do yeah, you by chance have, um, is there like a good online resource by chance that you know of that people might be linked to? Uh, now, but in English, I cannot think right now in one link, but yeah, I know a couple in Spanish. One that I know it's uh, De La Red al Plato, but yeah, let me think about one in English. And I can okay. do like, 
<laughs> you can send both. Uh, you can send yeah. me both English and Spanish because yeah. this yeah, this yeah. is a definitely an international uh, audience. So I'm sure somebody yeah. can read. A lot of people actually could probably read Spanish just fine and, and would love those resources too. So yeah, send those to me and I'll make sure they get in the show notes. Um. <laughs> yeah, but the seafood watch, it's like mm, Yeah, that's easy a great one. Yeah. Awesome. Well, next, I would like to make a little bit of a shift here and we're gonna just move away from whales a little bit. And I would love to chat about you for a second. And I would, I really want to ask the question, how have you balanced being a mother and doing your kind of work? I would just really love if you could just share your tips or what your experiences have been, because there are a lot of women that listen to this podcast and we are all in this together. Like we all love being out and doing this amazing research and it might feel like maybe becoming a mother might be in conflict with those personal desires of going out into the wild and doing these amazing things. So what has your experience been like becoming a mother? And maybe what are some tips to maybe someone who is getting ready to become a mother or who also wants to be a mother? Well, yeah, tell us. Tell us how it's been for you. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, like being a mother is like a full-time job. <laughs> maybe two full-time jobs, <laughs> but it's like very demanding, but it's very, very nice and beautiful. So yeah, uh, luckily since the beginning, I have a lot of support from everyone in that surrounded me. So yeah, for me, actually motherhood has been great and has been not that like hard in terms of like combining that with work. But because of mostly I'm very lucky to work with people that was like very supporting when I was pregnant, then in my job, my boss was like, okay, if you need time, take your time. Then I got this maternity leave where I, I have like six months, I think, where I was able to work from home and stay with my daughter. And then I started to bring my daughter out to the field that was not something possible every time but so I was like taking her and then I have a lot of support from my family and also I really like to mention that you need to find a full community to raise a child so you really need a lot of help and then this. but hi uh, yeah, yeah. she's making an appearance right at the right moment <laughs> yeah we know that we are she knows that we are talking about her yes <laughs> but sorry. yeah as I as I say, yeah, you really or like every child needs like a community to be raised. And then I'm very lucky that in San Cristobal I found this community of people that my family was part a lot on being and coming here and visiting and taking care of Brisa, my daughter. But all the community in here was has been like so supportive in terms of like getting with other parents in terms of like seeing how it is to raise a child because yeah you don't know like what is going to happen then you like you are like also learning to be a parent when you're a parent but yeah like having the support of the community and the people around has been like great in terms of like being able to be a mother and then work and then come back and then yeah spend time with my kids 
and spend time at the field. So yeah, then I was like, okay, at the beginning I was, yeah, I'm going to be a mother. Great. That is going to like a couple of years and then that will be very easy. But yeah, no. And then when she turned to, I was like, oh no, this is more demanding than I was, it was at the beginning. <laughs> So, yeah, it makes you to, like, start planning and managing your time more in detail and with more flexibility as well, because then you (laughs) always need to, like, have the flexibility of changing things. Then maybe they get sick, maybe they need your attention, and they are kids, so that's what they need, the mother to be around. So, yeah, it's, like, challenging, but not impossible, I think. So I think it's, like... It's going to be a lot in like how supported you are in terms of like with the people taking care of the kids and with the family. So yeah, I'm very lucky, as I mentioned, to have a lot of people around me that has been like a lot of help. Uh, Also, my partner has been a lot of support. We work together. We are do a lot of things together so we manage uh, between both of us to like do the things that we need to do with the kid as well great yeah (laughs) great great because I just know from personal experience like I've not become a mother and there's a really good probability I'm not going to become a mother but I know personally like being a woman and having so many women friends in this field, like there seems to be like a personal battle of wanting to do our passion, but also the desire to become a mother and to see somebody who's doing it and you do, and you are going out and you are still doing these amazing things and you're having these great publications and like the first researching group to tag a blue whale, like that's incredible. And you're a mom. Like, so, so you're just, I just hope that this gives inspiration and like you can do both. You can do both. And I'm sitting with a perfect example of someone who is doing both. And that's just amazing. Just think of the incredible example you're giving your daughter, especially in a male dominated field. You're like, girl, I'm doing it. Look, and I'm going to take you with me. yeah totally totally for sure and then yeah this uh, all this thing about like being a woman and this woman in science and all the inequality you actually feel it because then yeah it's like male dominant and then now it's changing I have seen that it's changing and luckily in my work in my field side, I had a lot of support. I have a lot of inspiration also in other women, in other professors. So yeah, it's not easy, but it's possible to do it. And yeah, if you think and you want to do it, like there is always a way. So yeah, that would be the advice, like go for it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Go for it. Yes, whatever it is. Either way, if you want to be a mother, if you want to be an amazing researcher, you want to be both, you can do it. Yeah. That is- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> like, women are, like, very powerful in terms of, like, multitasking and, like, managing to do all these amazing things at the same time. Um, and then, yeah, I, like, also think it's, like, very 
respectful and very good choice if you want to just choose to do one thing. I really think it's like a lot of job itself and being just a mother, it it's an amazing thing and it's also a lot of effort just to raise a child and then just being science or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's very rewarding. So yeah, whatever it is, <laughs> it's like the good thing is like to be supported and also to like do the things you want to do. <laughs> mm, yes, absolutely. And there's also another side of this that I love to explore with my guests that come on and it's you know, not everything is just super easy and rainbows and it flows. And, and sometimes we go through some pretty difficult things, you know, whether it being in a male dominated field or a certain example or a hard time in our life, but is there a particular struggle that you've gone through that you had to overcome that you would be willing to share with us and and what that story was? Uh, mostly I think what your mind think <laughs> like you cannot be like for me it, it was always like doubting on if I was going to be able to do it or not as you say no always like oh maybe I'm I'm going to be able to go to the field and to collect the data and maybe I'm going to be selected or not for that position or yeah always like not being sure if I was capable of like doing those things. But then once you start trying or start with something, maybe you are going to fail, but then it's part of the learning. So yeah, it happens that sometimes like I try things that they don't do not come out as I wanted to or how I wanted, but it's like also a learning process and yeah it's not as like you go out to the field and it's perfect and it's sunny and nice and the waves are just jumping there it's like very very hard it's like very expensive and hard to get like funding for the projects and it's a lot of effort to be out many days far from the family thinking like oh how my kid is doing and then like not the weather conditions and not very nice the whole time so yeah and then it's also being in a boat not all of the time but some of the times I'm the only woman in the boat so mm, yeah yeah so I'm like okay managing with all those things that yeah it's not always like very nice but it's uh, acceptable and then as I mentioned like all this is like a process, a learning process, and it gives us uh, experience on how to react and what to do. So it's a very good thing as well, both sides and like having the nice part and the hard part. And then another hard part is also like coming back and sitting in the computer just to analyze data and <laughs> yeah. start writing. That's for me also one of the hardest parts is like, okay, concentrate. Don't look out on the window and just stay in the computer. I think, yeah, one of the hardest part is one for me is that as well. But I'm like focusing more and trying to become a better writer and like getting more time on the computer as well. Oh, I completely get you there. Like, oh, this is because like, you know, when people hear my kind of job as well, they're like, oh, you must be traveling the world all the time. I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm not. I just, when I do, I go to really cool places, but like, no, 
This is this is what I'm doing most of the time. It's not sexy at all. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. In any way. <laughs> A lot of time just spending in front of the computer, like writing, like searching. But it's cool, but I'm always like, my level of procrastination is like, okay, how many things I do at the house? It's like, okay, washing the dishes, cleaning the house, what else? Then gardening and doing the plants, whatever. It's like, oh my God, then yeah. <laughs> Wait. All those things can't wait and then yeah but it's always like that like just focusing and then i start like seeing something in the house or whatever <laughs> now that we are like working from home it's even worse because then the office is like just there but being at home is like you get distracted yeah with the kid with the whatever thing like anything like a bird pass by flying and just ah there's a bird <laughs> like, i gotta go see it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah it's part of <laughs> yeah like, have to have the highlights with the low lights they balance themselves out <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah and then yeah but then like seeing the results and then like getting the information together it's like oh so exciting that at the end that is like also the balance of being just in the computer that a lot of time <laughs> so, yeah, so do you have I, I also love asking this question because I never know what you're going to say. Do you have a particularly like crazy or wild story that just really sticks out in your mind from being in the field? Do you have anything? Oh, I have a couple, <laughs> but yeah, one uh, is when I was in this uh, remote place studying Wales. One night I was like just uh, looking at the horizon because the the station was high kind of in the mountain. So we were using also the station as an observation point for citation. So one night I was just there, not looking, just like brushing my teeth and half a whale jump and uh, all these bioluminescence light up with the whale. And it was like like the movie Life of P. Have you seen that movie yes. where they so it was like that and I was like oh my god that that just happened or it was my imagination so it was like that was like awesome and then I was like waiting to for that to happen again and yeah never happened again but yeah that was one of the most incredible things because I I just like saw the movie and it was like oh my god <laughs> but yeah and then just recently like just being so close for to the blue whales has been for me like something that if you say that that will come to my, my mind because it just happens and it's just like very fresh and getting those images because then you get close to with the zodiac and then the animals are there they come out and then they go down and then sometimes they go under the boat so you see actually how they dive under the boat and you wait, wait, wait. And then a few seconds later, you see the tail passing by and it's like, oh my God. It's still like going. Animal. Yeah, it's like, oh, is it still going? Oh my God, it's like so crazy. That's like, for me, it was like, oh, so crazy. And then the first time I was like, oh, screaming. And then everyone in the boat was like, come on, what are you screaming? You we can we don't know if you are like falling about or what is happening so do not i was like yeah i'm sorry i cannot control myself but yeah I, 
those things like happened and it's like very fresh in my mind so if you ask me it will be like that as well but yeah luckily i had the chance to see like so amazing things in here yeah one of the best dives also with like tons of animals unique animals so yeah very uh, amazing things happens in the Galapagos so you should come and visit for sure oh I'm coming back I've been there before and it was 2018 I I did a big Mm. tour around the islands and oh my gosh yep one of my really great friends uh Josie Cardoso she's a guide she's a Galapagos guide and so and she has her and her mother have uh, a little boutique bed and breakfast Mm -hmm. as well on Santa Cruz I'm pretty sure I think on Santa Cruz Island. Does that sound right? I think so. I visited it. Or is it San Cristobal? I don't know. It's, it's Maybe San Cristobal. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. I don't know. I got to ask her. But yeah, okay. we had like margaritas outside, you know, as we were like waiting and helped bring towels back to the bed and, uh, bed and breakfast. But yes, I am dying to come back. And I'm going to have to see both of you for sure. I'm going to have to see Josie and you. We're going to have to go out and have fun. (laughs) For sure. No, yeah. Awesome. You are welcome to to visit. I would absolutely love that. Yes. So do you have any particular advice or or a, a message that you would love to share with anybody listening? Oh, yeah. Every time I can share this message, I can, I try to do it. And it's like, basically, it doesn't matter how you try to help the ocean. It doesn't matter, like, if you are perfect, if you, in terms of, like, if you are, like, for example, if you are, like, you don't need to be, like, a perfect vegan or a perfect plastic-free person or a perfect, like, conservationist, but just doing one little thing, you are doing something so I always say like if we do one small thing by seven billion people doing it we can still do something so that's the that's the advice no matter what you're doing or what you try to do to conserve the oceans or the planet just do it (laughs) like doesn't matter if it's not perfect if it's not the full time or the, all the time but if you do something you're like actually getting a, a change that it's going to help in terms of like protecting the environment and the ecosystem that would be the message for sure I love it yes 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 I <laughs> preach the exact same thing yes sometimes it's so hard when we have these really high standards of ourselves, and if we break it one time then we just feel like a total failure but it, no it's just over the long term, how much are you reducing your impact? So, yes. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, Daniela. Thank you so much again for coming on and sharing your wonderful knowledge about blue whales and this super special species. And I'm definitely going to have you again on the future because you're going to have to give us all this updates of all the incredible stuff that you are, are finding and researching right now. So, again, Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure for me. And totally, I want to come back and we can discuss more about other species of cetaceans like killer whales or bottlenose dolphins. And yeah, keep going with this amazing world of like cetaceans in tropical waters. Oh, yeah, we will definitely do that. Awesome. 
Well, thank you. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.